Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And this is... Oeuvre Busters. Quick, quick, do your James Gandolfini. Liam, I don't know uh, you're Oh, I was going to say, I'll save, I'll save the, the real Gandolfini stuff for the Patreon. Maybe we should do an episode um, for the Patreon. Um, this week In character? We have... This week on Uberbusters, shut the fuck up, I'm doing a bit. <laughs> this week on Uberbusters, we have James Gandolfini here to talk about his new film, Killing Them Softly. James, how oh, are I'm you? Oh, pretty fucking good. <laughs> I, I've actually heard in real life he was like a gentle Oh, I giant. know, yeah. Like yeah really, he seems like an absolute... Really nice no, guy. he's like... Uh, every once in a while on Twitter, somebody will tweet out like a picture of him and be like, miss you, King, or... Oh, Thank- I know. It's all Nick Yusin. What you're describing <laughs> is all Nick Yusin. He, run, he runs tweets. an amazing Twitter account, and it'd be like, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, I. I'm How online is a podcast when it reference a film Twitter account <laughs> that that like the the four people that listen to this are going to be like, oh, yep, good Nick Yusin yeah, joke, great, really yeah. good. He's not the only one, but um, yes, his. I am a fan. I'm a fan. Oh, it's great. He uh, speaking of uh, film Twitter, should we should we talk about? Should we talk about the movie? We're oh, yeah, about? sure. Of course. How can I try to explain when I do it turns away? Are you singing the gondola song? It's always been the same, the same old story. No, it's I thought about Father and Son by Cat Stevens Aww. the whole time we were watching this movie. <laughs> so I just thought I would serenade you. <laughs> You're going to start singing the cat in the cradle. How's that one go? Um, uh, I think father and son is a little more. Maybe cats in the cradle would would is be it good. Cats or cat? Now that I think about it, that's a very strange image. What the fuck is a cat doing I've, in the cradle? That's a good question. Why don't we talk about it later? But Carmela, uh, what the fuck what is that cat are... doing in the cradle? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What movie are we? So Liam, what movie we're are we discussing? But we should actually talk about this too. We're discussing 1952s. 1951s. I, I, I'm I'm showing 1952. Hang on, let me check in with our with our with our with the show uh, Bible. Akira Kurosawa expert James Gandolfi. <laughs> it's nineteen fucking fifty two. Uh, Ikaru. You're right. To live. To live. Wait, did you say I was? To can live. we just? Can you isolate the you saying uh, that I was right about the nineteen fifty two? Yeah, the the film is from the year nineteen fifty two, according to James Gandolfi. <laughs> Starring uh, Takashi Shimura, and of course directed by Akira Kurosawa. Not a Mifune film, but uh, nonetheless a fucking an important a, movie in the oeuvre. As as Roger, yeah, as, as Roger mm-hmm. Ebert would say, a fucking banger. A banger. A banger. Four stars. Four banger. stars. Banger. Lots of thumbs um, up. What what's this movie about, George? So this movie is about a disaffected and lowly bureaucrat by the name of Kanji Watanabe, who finds out that he's dying of stomach cancer. And if you want to, um, which apparently also is an opportunity for lots of chuckles, if you follow Liam's tweets about farting and diarrhea. Um, and basically, what happens is once Watanabe finds out that he's dying of stomach cancer. The spends the rest of the film trying to f- figure out what to do with his last days on Earth and his money, and um, yeah, and just kind of. I mean, there's no real plot, but he wanders through a whole bunch of different kind of situations, trying to 
reclaim some kind of essence or kind of, again, figure out what his life's about. So at some point... Isn't that the plot of life? Ooh, deep. (laughs) And it's one long slow fade to that black. He party. Oh, God. He parties. Jesus. All right. Podcast canceled. <laughs> so, God, I have to call my therapist again. I just spoke to him like five hours ago. I have to call him back. He again. likes this movie. He's a I huge think, fan. Yeah. He's going to be, he's going to yeah. be glad uh, that we're talking about it. So, basically, yeah, at some point he goes to like a nightclub slash bordello. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, he for parties sure. parties with this novelist. He, obviously, he doesn't kind of get anything out of that. He then begins this weird kind of um, flirtation or association with one of his younger coworkers, who's a woman. Much younger, much younger coworkers. Coworker, yeah. Creepily younger squid in the whale vibes. Well, coworkers. we should talk about this too, because to what degree is he in any sort of way romantically attached to her and to what degree is it a kind of like romantic attachment but one that not even just because she's not gonna have fucking sex with him but to what degree is it from his point of view also or from our point of view i guess the viewers meant to think about as asexual because i didn't i think it's that's a good question there's a tension there's a tension to it for sure and at some point obviously the film clearly makes that clear so anyway at some point she also kind of gives watanabe this idea which we get an inkling of very early in the film of converting this swamp or this like cesspool in this neighborhood into a park, um, a playground for kids. And basically the last 45 minutes of the, he dies with about 45 minutes left of this film. And the last 40 minutes is this really fucking interesting. Yeah. Totally different movie in some ways where you basically get all of these, other disaffected bureaucrats that worked with him talking about his life and what he did to make the playground an actuality. Um, this movie, as George said, was directed by Akira Kurosawa. It's produced by Sojiro Motoki. The screenplay was by Kurosawa, Shinobu Hashimoto, who he had worked with a lot. And this is the first film, I believe, that he collaborated with Hideo Agune, who was like, kind of wrote action movies. Mm for a lot of his career. Um, and then this movie sort of like brought him into the fold in um, our friend Stuart Galbraith's book. He's, there's a lot of talk about how uh, he challenged Kurosawa as a writer in a way that nobody else really could. It sounds like Kurosawa in some ways was a bit of like, what's that term? Like an enfant terrible oh, or yeah. whatever it is. Just like, like a real taskmaster. Well, um, the movie. Oh, sorry. I, I just, in, in Stuart's book, there's that great, um, story about the Seven Samurai where he would kind of pick an actor during every production to kind of humiliate or to just kind of degrade. And I forgot the actor in the Seven Samurai, but the book is amazing in detailing just kind of the br- brutal takedowns that Kurosawa put this poor guy through during production. Yeah, he's... Yeah, the guy, um, the and the guy who played Hihachi, who is like one of the nicest, I believe it was Hihachi, who's one of the nicest guys in the world. Um, the cast of this movie is a who's who of Kurosawa dudes, with the exception of of Mifune. But I thought we would just chat about a couple of them. Uh, Takashi, Takashi Shimura as Kanji Watanabe, like the the main guy, our hero. Um, CG Miyaguchi and Daisuke Kato play Yakuza's for a brief moment in the movie. And if you remember, CG Miyaguchi is the swordsman oh, yeah. in uh, Seven Samurai. He plays a yes. really badass Yakuza in this. And his enforcer is played by da- Daisuke Kato, who's like one of the older, chattier, friendly figures in seven samurai and minoru chiaki plays noguchi one of the sort of salary men this movie is something of a critique of the japanese salary man the guy who shows up for his job and um and he is um he plays a big part as the sort of inexperienced samurai who dies earlier on in seven samurai uh the film also stars shinichi himura as kimura Sorry, Shinichi Himori as Kimura. Kimura is sort of the one salary man who seems to learn a lesson from Watanabe's death and is in the final harrowing image of the movie. Also, Yunosuke Ito is the novelist, and he's a character I really want to talk about because after this movie, I was like, I want to do a season about this guy. <laughs> the um, character or the Miki actor? Odagiri plays Toyo, the young woman that he becomes kind of obsessed with. 
and she's really really good she's in this great. movie. George, what do you what do you uh type for anybody? No, George, what do you think of this oh, movie? Oh, this film's amazing. You a big yes. fan? It's it's interesting because about uh, a half hour in, 45 minutes, and I didn't mean this, I, I wasn't thinking about this in any sort of kind of dismissive way, and I think we've talked about this before, but it felt very much like a Capra movie. I was like, oh, oh I was interesting. Like, this is Kurosawa's It's a Wonderful Life, but obviously channeled through a far more kind of cynical and more realistic No, interesting. Lens. Yeah, just about kind of taking stock of your life and kind of thinking about your regrets or what it is that you spend your time doing or not doing, where you're like, oh, hey, maybe I should have gone outside a little bit more, gone to the park. Maybe I should have done a little bit less podcasting, a little bit less talking to a microphone, oh, talking same. movies. Same. And, you know, you, talking into the yeah, ether. Yeah, you just kind of really kind of take stock of your life and you're like, what the fuck am I doing with my time? <laughs> Me too, but I realized I was doing great. But I love this um, film. Th- it's interesting that you, you bring up Capra because there's lots. When this film came out, so very briefly, in 1956, this film was shown in California. Do you know under what title? Um, the guy who had stomach cancer. Doomed. <laughs> what? This movie was briefly called, for American audiences, Doomed. <laughs> that is such a shitty title. <laughs> I mean, that's almost as good as Homer Simpson remembering the name Speed as the bus that couldn't slow down. Well, I like my my alternate one film title uh, more as well. Was that my alternate film title? The one I just said, the man who was dying of stomach cancer. Yeah, man, the man with stomach cancer. Um, but there were a lot of comparisons when this when this film came out to Bergman, which mm. is something that our recent guest A.S. Hamra made. Is that there is in the like the let's say early to mid fifties period of Kurosawa, he was making these sort of like Bergman esque with the idiot interior kind of films. I feel like this film's. I I really like this film. I I. I found it a struggle to watch at home as I have with a lot of these movies and I'm I was extremely exhausted when I watched it but I really liked it. I think that the if I'm honest, I think that the way this film is talked about does a does a does a real disservice so? to the movie itself. Well, it's just not nearly as sentimental or as like affirming as I think it's kind of sold to be and I I don't understand like why why I just don't I'm not. I, I. I'm sort of surprised. It's a really dark. Yeah, movie. of course. It's about death and super and dark. Face- and I kind of thought it was a little lighter than that. Does that make sense? You. You I mean the know. expectations? You thought the expect. What you? Yeah, heard- my expectations were like, oh, look at that cute old guy feeling good about his life on a swing. <laughs> that's what I thought we Nothing were getting. Sad about I thought we were that getting scene, like a nice swing but- movie. So uh, that's also interesting. Sorry, but I. Fifteen minutes into this movie, I was like, oh my god, I've never seen this movie, and I thought I had. Ah. Do, do do you remember what you might have confused it for? I think I confused it with um, what's the other one where he plays the old guy and he has a daughter. Uh, do we ever see it? Scandal. Oh, scandal. scandal. Okay. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I, I like this film. I think the structure is great. I think it has some of Kurosawa's most interesting, austere cinematic choices which I'm really into. Um, and I think the structure. I tend to think that the second. The third, let's say the third act of the movie where we jump forward in time and then we're cutting back and forth between him as he's dying, finish fe- fe- uh, feverishly trying to finish this park and um, simultaneously um, watching the salary men get drunk and talk about what role he played in the park and is both f- amazing to watch and also feels um, a little bit... Uh, something that we have like as like that definitely paved the way for that kind of storytelling, but feels very dated now. Like it's interesting to see something that you can tell was incredibly innovative and also feel like, Oh, we've gotten better. Like it, it weirdly reminded me of like the end of a Nolan movie hmm. where you have simultaneous timelines coming in like incredibly cinematic ways. And like, you just feel like there's things in this movie, both thematically and, and cinematically that like feel like they walked. So future generations could, fly. I thought you were going to say remind you of a Nolan movie because there's that scene at the very end where it cuts and, uh, Watanabe is in, uh, Italy and he's sitting and with Anne Hathaway and he's drinking his coffee and, and Michael Caine, Michael Caine comes over and he's like, is that you, Master Walter Darby? Is that you, you disaffected bureaucrat? Is that you? 
kudos to the to, for the playground. Kudos. Um, what I what if my what Michael Caine um, sucks as, as, as sublime as if, my James Gandolfini is. My Michael Caine sucks. What if at one point Watanabe turned to Michael Caine and he was like, "You never gave up on me," and Michael Caine was like, "Never," <laughs> like he does in the Batman movies. Remember when he's like, "Never,", never. and like you're like, "Woof!" Why didn't yeah. Christopher Nolan pull him aside and go like, "Hey, Michael, Michael just say yeah. never, just say never." Tone it down. Never. You're. I, I want. I never. want. I want the cane at an eight, and you're giving me cane at a twelve. You're giving me. You're giving me fourteen canes. <laughs> you're blow- you're giving me full. You're blowing out the fucking speakers, mate. Calm the fuck down. Let's talk about Takashi Shimura. Oh, uh, yeah. He was only 21, by the way, when he filmed this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so born in 1905, died 1982. You know, it's interesting to think about a film, a guy whose face I've stared at for many, many hours of my life over most of it. We were never on the planet at the same time. I saw your note, too, and it said it said that never alive at the same time. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> He died in February of 1982, and I was born in December of 1982. Damn. We just missed Ugh. each other. Two stars, two stars passing in what the would, night. What would? So yes, what correct. Would old and he, he died fairly young. What would old um, Takashi Shimura have said to Baby Liam? I don't. I don't. I don't want to do an impression <laughs> here because it might be. Do a little you don't have to do an impression? Um, just say. <laughs> he, well, it's got it would have just out. been like. Uh, he'd probably be like, "Hey, hey." Hey. Work on the Michael Caine. Hey. Hey, Liam. You never gave you up never, on me. And I'll be like, there never. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, he died in 1982. He, we joke about this, but he was only 47 when he played mm-hmm. this part. And he's got to be supposed to be 70. Right? He's like an old man. We, are, maybe are in we the told? 60s? Yeah, maybe in the 60s. Okay. But, oh, yes. Um, he much was older. born. He was born in Osaka. He started, he was like really into English literature. He was like apparently great at speaking English. Oh. And he started a theater company and worked at a waterworks and then ended up working in radio plays. He did a theater before he was in any Kurosawa movies, before he was in over 100 Japanese films. Before he was even in one... Before. He was Good yeah, God. He was in over 200 movies. <laughs> I just imagine his days just walking from like set to set through like... Yeah, he's, what what old man he's am like, I yeah, playing he's today? Like, he's like, yeah, where, where where am I heading? Oh, over there. Okay, yeah, all right. I'll be I'll be there in a couple of minutes. Do you want me to just put yeah, on a different sure. way? He uh, he was arrested for associations with some left wing theater groups, and also, I mean, I think you know there was quite a crackdown in the 30s and 40s, and also um, was descendant of samurai. Mm. And Kurosawa referred to him as a good uncle, which I think is an interesting thing to talk about because this guy really has the like paternal dad thing down but from like a multitude of angles like in seven samurai he's kind of like sweet caring but harsh kind of samurai figure and then in this film he's kind of like a good a well-meaning but ultimately kind of bad dad yeah on some level i don't know he really like covered the gamut of dads is he a bad dad in this the dad i mean he's just kind of beaten down by like his job and by bureaucracy and by life well there is that early there's a really really great flashback sequence and like 20 30 minutes into the maybe where he like you see him you see his son you see the him driving um with his son and his wife's funeral which is like devastating um and then you see the son get his appendix out and the dad's like can you the son's like can you stay for the surgery and he's like oh, I have some oh things yeah to do. yeah and you're like motherfucker you're what? right yeah that scene though with the child yeah where they go is like when it, where's mom going like we have to catch up to her is like fucking heartbreaking oh it's so, so brutal so, yeah i guess you're right he's kind of he's the, a bit of a shitty dad like there's just, i mean it's not that he's a bad dad but i think that one of the things this movie is about is about like the meaningless of work uh like the 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 sort of like people working in dead-end jobs and the lack of actual meaning that brings for sure to yeah life. there's that great shot at the yeah. end where there's the new person in his position and he Oh no! And he puts yeah. his like head down, and the camera like zooms down, and he's surrounded by the, like the piles of paper. It kind of reminded me of like um, that scene towards the end of Brazil, where De Niro's character is swallowed up by all that paper. Oh yeah, and like right. the bureaucracy for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I feel like this movie has a lot of uh, interesting comment like very very feels like still very very timely you know i was reading i wrote in the notes here oh Ikiru wow you were, so reading. Could you were reading we get it you know how to read 
Whoopty! No, seriously, uh, adult literacy, illiteracy is a very serious problem, and uh, we shouldn't make light of it. It actually yeah, is, yeah. and we shouldn't yeah, we joke should about it. it. You yeah, fucker! Uh, David Graeber, who the recently passed away academic who wrote Bullshit Jobs, which is a book that might as well have been inspired by Ikiru because it's kind of about the jobs that we've invented and like you know post World War II America and obviously across the world that the the, st- the book is a study of like you know, the ways that we've created this meaningless jobs. And I think this movie is right on about Have you that. read that Graeber book? I'm reading oh, it now. Yeah, I want to read it. Between between reading that and I'm also reading the um in case you want to know how about how great I am with white boy <laughs> shit. I'm also reading Glenn Kenny's book uh good book about Goodfellas and this new book about Kid A, the radio oh, head. Nice. The radio because well, it's like the twenty year yeah, anniversary. Someone right? sent it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is about sort of like what that, but what that album has to say about the 21st century. Just quickly. So I'll far. You, yeah. Just quickly. An interesting critique of the Graeber book. And I, I should read it, but to consider the, the degree to which all jobs, of course, are bullshit, at least all jobs under capitalism. Um, two is the Goodfellas book called what the fuck is so funny about me. And three, what's the title of the, of the Radiohead book? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Hey guys, are you really enjoying this? Oh come on, this it's just organic. The name of the, book. the name of the Goodfellas book is Made Men, and it's by Glenn Kenny and Will. Will Will you know Glenn Kenny? Shout out, great great book. Um, maybe we should we should see it. Maybe he wants to come on Why the not? podcast. He won't. Um, and the name of the Radiohead book is This Isn't Happening. Ah, uh, uh-huh. and it's by Stephen Hyden. Uh, I'm still. So, who seems like a really cool music critic? I'm really guy. pissed. I'm still pissed that Nick Hornby, who wrote a very negative review of Kid A, back in the New Yorker when the first album, when the album came out, totally, completely fucking missed the boat on on it. Well, okay, I'm gonna take an. I mean, this isn't what this is about, but I'm gonna take issue with that because when Kid A came out, I don't think anybody knew what to do with it, and that's like, I understand if the first time you heard Kid A, you were like, "Fuck this!" Like, what is this? No one listened to Kid A the first time and was 100 percent like, "Yep, yep, 100 percent." I love that part when it's like everything, but like no one was so. I, I mean, thought you were at least. I thought it's you were going to say the second track. It's, it's like do 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 do. We've got hell downstairs. Yeah. Well, uh, I I think this idea that we have to, in retrospect, love everything because it's we we've recognized it's 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 inherent. It's like it's a review. There's no way. Just very quickly. There's no way going back that that album wasn't on a whole bunch of top ten lists. It was on a bunch of top yeah. ten lists, but I think the initial reaction was like, what "Yeah, sure." Is that like, this? okay, this is weird. They were a guitar band who were like, "We're like, guys, let's do something really yeah. different." I'm really sad. <laughs> I'm really sad. There's there's this really there's sad. this one interview with Tom York where they were like, "How did you feel after listening to Kid A?" And he was like, "I listened to it in the car all the way through for the first time, and I sat in the back weeping." <laughs> it was like, and they were like, "Okay, great, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Tom." Connecting this back to Ikiru and David Graeber, I think that this movie is as much a critique of like the post World War II order that's been established and the way it dehumanizes. It's Everything. also very Kafka-esque with its critique of bureaucracy. Not obviously as, in, yeah, as absurd, but it's all over. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's something about this movie. There's a couple of things this movie does really well is that it's about it's about sort of like bureaucracy. It's kind of about like the meaningless of like these jobs. I think it's also, I think increasingly when you look at the modern, Kuros- the, the, the I should say the Kurosawa films that take place in contemporary 1950s, 1940s 1950s japan they all seem to be about either young figures trying to figure out their place in the world and older figures like figuring out what their graceful exit is like i live in fear being about a father wanting to take care of his family in a post-nuclear age uh stray dog being about like a young anxious man who like fucks up in this new world order by losing his gun and everyone around it being like, eh, you only have so much control. And that movie's kind of about the way that we treat criminals, quote unquote criminals. Whereas this film feels like it's kind of about like our relationship to our work and how so many people go through life zombified. Yeah. Or yeah. Or the term you just hear mummy that he's mummified. Yeah. Same thing. Or so there's a couple young, I mean, it's kind of clear that, you know, we the argument is that Watanabe loses his has lost early on in his life had career plans 
and he wanted to do good work in the city planning, but the loss of his wife and the fact that he didn't advance in his career, it seems like, have made him kind of, um, what's the word, disaffected and disillusioned and unable to do the work. And there's two, like, I feel like there's two youthful, young figures in the film to talk about really quickly. One is his son and his son's wife, who are these, like, kind of shitty, petty, bougie people would you yeah, say yeah it reminds me a lot of tokyo story actually oh talk more well, about just that. in the fact that the younger generation to a certain degree is really checked out and does not really care about what happens to their parents or their grandparents or whatever the case might be in tokyo story obviously it's again the parents um and yeah there's, again there's this kind of divide and i think what's great though about it is like what you were saying earlier is that the film doesn't let the older generation off the hook in the sense like, right again, Watanabe could have been a better dad in certain respects, even though the son is clearly also really kind of shitty and doesn't like listen to his dad when his dad tries to tell them that he's sick or kind of dismisses his illness. And because at some point he's like, Oh yeah, like we know you're dying and what we really need to figure out is what's going to happen with your money after you die. Yeah, he's obsessed with his yeah. retirement, and he's also ashamed that his that his son, his father take, spends time with um, Toyo, played by Miki Odagiri. So she's another figure that I think is really interesting to talk about sure. because she's probably like what twenty one. The character, and he's obsessed yeah. with her. Yeah, yeah. She's young. She's worked in the office for a year and a half, and like, she's kind of like the figure in the story who's like, "What the fuck are you guys doing?" Yeah. With your lives. She's the only female figure in that environment, which which is really interesting. And we find that and Oh no, and mm-hmm. she has this that like this hobby, right? That she makes those little bunnies. Yeah, she makes well that becomes her job, doesn't it's, it? Later, yeah. But I'm saying like initially it's isn't it just like a hobby? She says, like, oh, I do this. Oh, she quits, right? Yeah, she says that she wants to quit. Yeah, she quits the office to go work at a, at a toy factory mm-hmm. to make toys for kids. And like, she's working all the time and she's super tired, but she has that beautiful line where she's like, I feel like I'm becoming friends with all the kids I make r- rab- rabbits right. for. And here is where I feel like the film's kind of dialectical <gasps> thing. reading comes into play, where you have these people who are doing these jobs where essentially they look at a piece of paper and they stamp it or they pass it to someone else. And they're just like collecting pieces of paper and they're all unhappy, but they don't want to admit it because they think they're important and they're all in denial versus like the person who works really hard making things. And I feel like it's an interesting read of the movie as being like a material, like a take on like what you do with your hands and your body. Yeah. If, if it brings joy to others, it brings joy to you. Huh? Yeah. Yeah especially in the practical application of I'm making a thing and I, and she's able to make the connection between her labor and the value it brings to the world that I don't think they are. Right. That she's able to write. And obviously setting aside the fact that she's making commodities, but yes, she's able to see through it or she's able to, yeah, she, it's a dream of labor. That's not alienated. What? Yeah. Okay. That's a great way to put it, but also like, yeah, commodities, but also like, they're, this is interesting because it's not like, I don't think all commodities are bad, right? Inevitably, that's ridiculous. But it is interesting that it is within this like company that mass produces toys for children. And that kind of like leisure class that was probably was evolving all over the world post-World War II. And like people suddenly had time to do things. And so it's interesting in the sense that like these petty bureaucrats like spend their days doing nothing and then they go home and they're able to buy these things that their kids love that bring their kids joy, but they have no joy in their lives. But this young woman has joy because she makes this thing. So there's an interesting tension between the idea of like, she's mass producing something, but she cares very, very deeply about what she's making. And I don't know if that's naive on her part. I certainly don't think the movie, the movie portrays her as naive, but naive and like an almost appreciable, appreciable appreciate what am i looking for here like like her naivete does not get in the way of an earnest happiness uh yes sure and i think i would say if this makes sense i would say that there's right that there's not every commodity is bad but perhaps the commodity form is bad so i don't 
I don't mm. want to get... Talk, what do you mean? Well, just because, again, it's kind of like the idea, let's say that, yes, it, there's a certain kind of sense by which just because something is a commodity does not necessarily mean that the joy that's derived from it is bad or is less right. than um, meaningful or authentic, that it's not authentic. Uh, right. I mean, even just kind of thinking about like the sense that we're, you know, the, like these films, we're watching them via like our very bougie streaming services through like our very curated Oh, I watched mine on a 16 millimeter uh, film print, so I don't know what you're talking about. Through like our art, you know, our art, our art house uh, streaming channels, like that's like obviously a form of consumption and whatnot. Yes. But that doesn't mean like the experience of the film or the experience of it as a kind of work of art is any less again authentic or meaningful. But I would just say, I well, mean, the, the, I mean, listen, these are much mar- much larger fucking questions. But yes, I do think there is an interesting question to be raised though about like well isn't let's say the playground a much more meaningful form of labor because it is not commodifiable it's something that's there strictly for the joy and the pleasure of these kids and it is not something that can be sold and repurposed in its in its in in its get ready for it in its and essence it's, oh deep Ooh. <laughs> someone give me a job um so that's interesting from a couple perspectives because like i mean speaking like as annoyingly but like i didn't really care about playgrounds from age like 14 until age 36 35 when i had a kid and now and now that we can't go on like the fact that there were the kids the kids being on a playground for me was so emotional in this movie because my kid hasn't been able to oh, be on a playground gosh. since. I mean, beyond like a couple times. And she's actually mostly, she, we've, we've been flouting the rules because they thought it was fine to reopen bars in this fucking yeah. state instead of playgrounds. <laughs> Talk about commodities, yeah. commodifying <laughs> things. But um, yeah, it's it, it, you're right in that maybe there's something to be said about the his inspiration to focus on building a playground no matter what until his dying literally his dying day is driven by seeing her finding joy in creating a commodity and by yeah, yeah. seeing her create this thing he uses the potential and the power that he has to make something that is truly like a public space it's a commons. And, a, and a space for like public good yeah it's a, it's a commons mm-hmm. right. And, and right, right, again, right right it's something sure. um again it's a democratizing space. It's available to all. Um, and it's open to all. And yeah. And there's something, again, this kind of sense of like the, and this is where it becomes a bit Capra esque about bringing joy to the innocent or to the, um, uh, yeah. I mean, not, not the weak, but the, you know, well, it's an equalizer. It brings all sorts of different types of people together. That's what's amazing about no, a but also, right? but the sense like, of also like particularly bringing joy to kids, right? Well, I think also one thing that we haven't said is that this is well, we've said it, but we haven't brought it into this. Is that this is another one of these examples of the way Kurosawa seems sort of obsessed with surfaces, especially as they and and, and places as they relate to like post World War II Japanese recovery, in the sense that like it's like an area with toxic waste. It, it, yes. it, it almost could be the same place as drunken yes. angel. Yeah. Which is exactly what I was thinking too. Yeah. And that was very resonant. Like I hadn't thought about that at all. Like, Oh, this is, this is a little bit of a, um, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a callback to the kind of degradation. And again, of a character played by Shimura, who's of advanced years with something wrong with mm-hmm. him. Which is interesting. Um, it's interesting that this movie opens with uh, a shot of his in of a X-ray of his interiors. It made me think of two things. One, it made me think of this film Metabolism or When Evening Falls in Bucharest, which is a great Cornelio Poramboy film. The guy who made Police Adjective and made The Whistlers, which is he's one of my favorite. I love him. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And Uncut Gems because mm. Uncut Gems opens with a colon- colonoscopy, and these are both kind of movies about like moral and to some extent like moral and spiritual uh rot and like for better or for worse being addicted to your job yeah for or, or your hobby of gambling 
<laughs> well, yeah, but in a way, he's like addicted addiction. to the. In the way that, like, in the beginning of the film, Shimura is addicted to the like the monotony, so he doesn't have to deal with any other aspect of his life. I think Adam Sandler's Howard Rat Howard Howie, yeah, ha- yeah. Howard Howie is addicted to uh, not addicted to like being in debt and having problems and having an addictive personality. The, the highs of gambling, for sure. Love it. Uh, but yeah, no, that's a great uh, point. Oh, the, that's the other thing also that reminded me, of course, of It's a Wonderful Life, the voiceover that begins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the very literary voiceover yeah. that begins the film and fades away. Speaking of literary, by the way, did you have you read the novella that this is based on? Oh, you can read. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Now who's showing cool. off? Look at you, reading books. Oh, look books. at you, what, big what, fucking wait, guy reading. James. You like books? James, oh, please. cool. Egg over here. Why did I? T- James, James I, th- I thought you James. were on my side. Big fucking deal, you academic piece of shit. That's very weird that you like to read Lars. Lars. <laughs> we're doing all the greatest hits. <laughs> Hello. Oh, my God. They're it's all back. Marty. They're all Marty. back. Marty. Lars. Marty, what are you up to? Uh, Hating Marvel films again, I see. Excellent. Uh, I want to make a Tulsa movie. The Tolstoy novel. Have you read it? The Death of Ivan... No, the death of Ivan yeah. Illich. No, is it good? It's it's amazing. Um, but it's been a while since I've read it. But I was also oh, you can. Re- <laughs> it's a little callback. Um, yeah, it was like another again. Uh, this this other reference to Kurosawa's again fascination with Russian literature, which I found. Yeah, he loves Russian literature. Loves I believe it. it was when our last episode did. He has this a uh, unique ability, like we've talked about, sort of a thematic connection of all the is that he has an ability to make thought really visual. Yeah, there is a great moment in this film, and I think this can lead into our next bit of conversation, where he meets a novelist played so by. So clearly, he lives in Brooklyn. You know, you know, Suke Ito. Yeah. So yeah, he's clearly Takes he's place clearly in, in, par- in Park Slope, Bushwick. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so he uh, and they go out partying all night and they get wasted which i don't think you should drink when you have stomach cancer little psa friends Mm. don't drink when you have stomach cancer but um he there's a moment where he gets out of the car to throw up or to pee or to do something and the novelist follows him and they make eye contact for what feels like a minute and it's such an open moment because you're like the movie doesn't make you doesn't tell you what to think in that moment there's no like phoning in a feeling it's just a shared connection and i read it as ultimately this kind of partying isn't going to bring any meaning to your life for sure yeah so uh but that i just found that moment that's so cinematic like kurosawa is able to do really cinematic things like the tracking shots of him walking down the street and he stops at the edge of the road and all of a sudden you hear the trucks and it's like this great moment of interiority suddenly becoming like real world like there's so many really amazing um cinematic quietly powerful cinematic all the cuts the way it cuts from present to the past to five months ago without any warning is like really really incredible what about also that one scene where the young woman runs out in the street and the two cars whiz by her and it looks like there's like a like literally like a foot between each car on each side do you remember this this is when he buys her the stockings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he buys yeah. her the stockings, and I was right. Like, Holy fucking shit. Like, that's crazy. Because you. Well, they did that in a, in a Marvel green screen. <laughs> oh, is that what oh, right. So, yeah, like, they, there's the leftovers of the Endgame oh, set. Oh, that's why Thanos. That's set. Why, the Endgame that's why, sets. Like, there's a set. I was wondering why Thanos was driving one of those cars. I was like, that's weird. He was like, I am inevitable. Oh, I am and inevitable. everyone was like, ugh, we know. It's we like, get God it. Damn it. Um,. Yeah, that that was interesting. I I mean, how do you pull that stuff off? But again, he's at a point in his career where he's like, we're going to fucking almost hit someone with a car. I Let's don't care. Do it. Fuck it. <laughs> Let's do it. Um yeah, the the cinema cinematic potential of this movie is really great because this season is about Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. I have a question to Please. put to you. What part if he were in the film, what part should Mifune oh, play? Oh, easy. Easy. He would play the novelist. Yes, yeah, of course. It'd be so good. So, I mean, I love this actor. I think he's great. And Mafune might it might be too uh, Mafune. You'd be like, oh, it's yeah. Mafune. But like, I would love to see him play. Why that Why do you think he's a novelist? I have my well thoughts. I th- 
I wonder too. I want. Uh, let's. Um, well, I, I mean, I'd like to hear what you think. I think it's a critique. For I once. think it's a critique of kind of intellectualism or of a certain kind of intellectualism when it's faced with the grim reality of death. Realizes that it's you know think as much as you can, intellectualize as much as you can, rationalize as much as you can. When you are actually faced with that grim inevitability, you can't do anything about it. You can't like just rationalize it or fictionalize it away. <sighs> cool. <laughs> cool. It's cool. it's uh, raining. It's raining here. In, in um, yeah, I I think so. I I think that's a really good reading of it. Um, I think the other reading is that I wonder if there's a little bit of. Is there a little bit potentially maybe, and I think that this is me totally projecting, but is there a little bit of like a statement about regret in that figure in the sense that Kurosawa was originally a painter. Uh-huh. He's obsessed with novels. He sort of was at times in his life wanting to be something of an independent artist. And he's become this, I mean, like you just said, he just, he does a set. I mean, he's an amazing, astonishing filmmaker, but like when you make films, you're, you're sort of, you are caught up a little bit in like a bureaucracy. You have to manage all these people. You have to do all this stuff. And he's sitting in a, in a izakaya, you know, drinking and he meets this novelist and this novelist has freedom. And he says like, show me how to live. And like, you have to wonder if, I mean, uh, Akira Kurosawa is probably 42 when this film is made and like just at the height of his powers. And you just got to wonder if maybe, I don't, I don't know if it's intentional, but there's a little bit of like missing the independence perhaps that that kind of life could afford you. And then realizing that like nothing really everything is filled with regret right i mean that i'm geez yeah maybe <laughs> so, i mean maybe not i'm just i just, I just sort of reach i just I mean, have a hard time also believing that if you're you're a curious hour you're 42 you've done like don't you th- uh, think like not at a kind of i can't imagine curious hour just being Dick. Sad? No, it's, I can imagine being sad, but also having a bit of swag and just being like, yeah, I'm fucking Kira Kurosawa. Like, I, I've made Rashomon. Like, yeah. I'm internationally renowned. But this is a guy whose brother, this is a guy whose brother killed himself, who's, you know, was like, who later tried yeah. to commit suicide. I mean, we're psycho- psycho- psychologizing a little bit, but like, I just wonder if maybe there's, there at least the impetus is like, oh, look at the way this guy gets to live, and ultimately the way he lives is empty. Uh, so yeah, so maybe an, uh, right, a, a, a nostalgia for a life one has not lived, to kind of quote Fernando. Yeah, I Pessoa. mean, like he's you know he's out at night. He probably hasn't been out night drinking in thirty years. Kurosawa, you mean? Because he's been taking care of his son, and this guy is like. I mean, it's so romantic. He's like sitting in a bar. He finishes like a thing, and he's like, "Hey," he says to the bartender, or whoever, like, bring this over to like the public to the to the newspaper mm-hmm. or something like that or something it's like he the guy like makes a living writing fiction it's cr- i mean it's just i mean maybe it's not romantic but it has the potential i think it's also an allusion to the novella that it's based on and now if, now that i think about it i should go back and just quickly look at it because i wonder if there's a writer so one of the interesting things also just very quickly about the novella is that there's this ivan illich is dying Okay, I get it. You know what a novella I'm, I'm a very, is. Yeah. Jesus. Again, it's a novella, please. Not a novel. Don't. Don't. This could strew. It's a novella. Novella. So, in in the novella, the guy's dying, and there's one person, I believe his name is Peter, who's like this farmer. He's this peasant. And he's the one in the story who's able to take care of the dying Ilyich because he has a certain kind of like proximity to the intensity of life and he's able to kind of like face the grim realities of death in a way that the other people around Illich's life are not able to. And okay. like, that's a kind of like Tolstoy's, I think critique of a certain kind of, again, like bourgeois intellectualism that is not able to confront the grim aspects of life and of reality. But like this peasant, this hardworking peasant can so I wonder, like, if the novelist is like, to some degree, a kind of commentary oh. on that. But the movie doesn't really have. It doesn't that. have that other character, right? It doesn't have the character who takes care of no. him while he's dying. Yes. What I suppose it does have is the young woman who like teaches him, maybe to not take everything. Well, I don't know. There's no one in the movie who's like, don't take everything so seriously. <laughs> but he's dying, yeah. so how else do you? Or just like, but I just imagined like the way you said like, oh yeah, she doesn't like take things too seriously. And he's like, he's like, listen, I have to tell you something. I'm dying. 
And she's like, I'm dying too. To get out of here and go get some dinner. But um bum It's like, come on. Huh? 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 And he's like, no, seriously, I'm dying. No, really, I'm, I'm dying. dying. I'm dying. It's not good. I have to tell you that I'm dying. You know, this is a pretty great movie. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, That's kind of what I have it's to funny say. There's a lot we can talk we haven't, about. We haven't recorded the episode yet, but just a little teaser. Um, I was thinking a lot about uh, I Live in Fear while watching this and thinking about the the way in which this does a lot of things that I feel like that film kind of fails to do. Um, like what? I th- just I like that movie a I lot. I liked it too, but I feel like at some points it's a little, it's a little bit like too melodramatic. And I, I do need to go back and watch it again. But I feel like this film, and I think because of Shimura, of course, blends. Like again, it's not as you were saying earlier. It's not at all sentimental, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Shimura does such a great job. Did you uh, on Wikipedia there was this fact i don't know if it's accurate but apparently they were going to try to five fast facts about they were going to try to remake this uh with tom hanks yeah i've heard that before i've heard that before and i'm like good god like that would have been can you imagine like a robert zemeckis tom hanks version of this film it would suck okay here's the thing i think it would suck in 2003 i think if they made it now he could do it because I think he's gained a little bit of this. Like, I don't know how you feel, but like, I think I do not. I think bridge of spies, the movie he made with Spielberg a couple of years ago is like a fucking, it's like so, so good. And I think he does more interesting things now than he did in the early. I got to go. But yeah, it's been a while. I think since I've seen the Tom Hanks movie, but I, well, he's, he's the next season of the podcast. <gasps> so, you know, we can, we'll cover it. Wait, what? No, absolutely not. But like, you know, I mean, in 2000, just real quick, in 2000, ooh, list of Tom Hanks performances. Uh, 2000, he made Castaway. Ugh. Uh, Road to Perdition's a pretty good movie. That has a little bit of a Kurosawa kind of feel I to it. I haven't seen Road it. To Perdition Paul Newman, Oakland. right? Oh, get out of here. The Nooms. Um, the Nooms. Yeah, you know, he made some stuff that probably wasn't, Amazing. The just um, eating eggs with George Kennedy. But I, I think Ke- now he's become a little more like t- t- Bridge of Spies. Like it's not a great movie, but he's good in Sully. I think he's like a little more able to do the stuff he's doing is a little more nuanced. But then again, I don't know. He made Philadelphia. It's not like he's a slouch when it comes to no. Real he's a fucking great actor. But I mean, I think he. Why do you hate Tom I Hanks? I fucking hate him. Me too. I fucking hate that guy. But I think. But is is he a good Shimura sort of? No. Um. Okay, cool. Good talk. <laughs> He's not. So if they were going to remake this movie, who would they remake oh, it with? Who would be your English language? Of course. Ray Liotta. Timothy Chalamet. 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 That guy. Who? Timothy Chalamet? No. Um, no, that's a good question. I wonder who, who would the, the American equivalent be. Not American, but the guy from Sound of Music, uh, Christopher, Christopher Plummer, Plummer, who played Tolstoy in The Last Station. Oh, is that no, good? No, not really. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> no, it's not We're good. Bring it all no, the way back. No, but I mean, like, I could see Christopher Plummer. I could see Hopkins doing a kind of version of it that might be kind of interesting. Hmm. Especially the scene when he's like. A woman tried to get a park made, and, and I ate and her I liver ate with some fava beans. And then I just imagine. Wow, that's a good joke. I'm a hack. I'm a. But now I also hack. imagine Trent. Like, it's it's the film we were kind of gesturing to earlier, where it takes place in like Bushwick, Brooklyn, where there's this you know disaffected, like bureaucrat, and he sounds like Anthony Hopkins for some reason, and he's like just walking around Brooklyn. It's like, why the fuck do you have that accent? Oh, you know who would be great, Jonathan um, Price. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he'd be a real good. He's got a little edge. Robert Shimura Redford. doesn't have the same level of edge. And Robert, ooh, Robert Redford. Robert Redford. That'd be interesting. Um, ooh, Sasha Baron of Cohen. Of course. My son. <laughs> I, I, All right, we have to I'm wrap dying. this up. This is no good. It's going too yeah. far. Um, this is a great movie. Um, I, I do think I need to watch it again because um, it's a lot. It's very sad. It's very dense. And I don't really think the movie gets the kind of... I don't think it's like talked about sometimes in the right ways. I don't mean that like... I'm sure that 
critics and writers have done it, but I feel like it's the marketing of it is off from what the movie is about. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Uh, quickly, top yeah. three Radiohead albums. Uh, Hail to the Thief. Whoa. Number one? I'm just listing three Radiohead oh, okay. records. Hail to the Thief, the Ben's OK Computer. Okay. I would say the, I would say OK Computer, the Ben's. Nice. And then I would say, yeah, Hail to the Thief. You know why I like Hail to the Thief more than Kid A? And Am- I love Amnesiac and Kid A. I think they're both really good. Such In Rainbows bullshit, is but- great too, now that I think about it. Eh, it's fine. It's fine. But I think Hail of the Thief is is a nice balance between like boop boop bleep bleep bloop bleep bloop 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 and like the guitar. Some of the bleep bleep bloop bloop bleep. I like that mix. Um, have I've not to my ear aged very well. Which Some ones? Bleep bleep bloop 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 bloop. Um, just a real quick story, and then we'll wrap it up. The uh, the I saw them. I mean, I saw them a long time ago, but the, I saw them in support of Hail of the Thief and they opened with two plus two equals five and it was amazing because that song yeah. rocks. But they immediately went into Creep. Whoa. Which they hadn't played live in like yeah. years and they had to restart the song twice because Tom York was laughing so hard while he was like, he couldn't get through it and he was like, sorry, <laughs> um, let's do it again. <laughs> and like, he, I think they finally got through it, but like, he was laughing really hard while yep. he was singing it, which was like kind of obnoxious because that song fucking that's rules. Cool, yeah. But um, it was good. Uh, have you seen them live? I have. Uh, twice? I'm going to say t- at least twice, maybe three, but definitely twice uh, for OK Computer. Every, no, time no, I, uh, today. Try, every time I try to see them live now, the tickets oh, are yeah. sold out. It's impossible. It's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous. Remember in the good old yeah, days where you sucks. had to actually like wait in line like a true fucking fan to get tickets? Yes, those were the days. Those um, were the days. All right. Well, next, I think we see this movie. Uh, next up on the show, I'm not 100% sure when we're going to release this, but Blake Howard's coming to talk about Seven Samurai, and we have a few other guests, but we haven't recorded yet, so I don't know if I want to drop them. But yeah, just uh, They Live in Fear on. and Throne of Blood's coming up. I can't fucking Throne of wait. Blood. Yeah, there's a lot of... Yeah, oof, we've got a lot to do. Um... That's that's it. Please, uh, Patreon this month will be an episode on Ben Affleck. I've got to re- re- edit that one. Oh, well, that might have already happened. i, I got to figure <laughs> out when we're releasing this stuff. Subscribe to our Patreon. We have an episode about the Dirty Dozen. We have an episode about... We have some... some uh, before the Devil Knows Your Dead. Some fine words by me. Some fine writing. Are you? What's your? What's the theme of the next I one? I haven't decided yet, but I think I might write about Ben Affleck and that Some of All Fears film that I saw, which is, was really just weird watching that film today. You love that I movie. I fucking loved that movie. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, we released an episode with A.S. Hamra, who wrote The Earth Dies Dreaming and is the critic for The Baffler. And I think that's a pretty enjoyable, fun episode of a movie that not many people have seen that I think is really, really something, which is The Idiot from 1954. It's a couple of years after this one. Great film. Cool. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe. Subscribe to the show on Apple. Well, listen wherever, but some subscriptions, a little rate, a little review wherever you can. can. Particularly Sprinkle Apple those reviews. Very helpful. Sprinkle those reviews. A nice little dose of them. Um, I was Liam. Bellingham. I might still be George Fergopoulos. James, do you want to? Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> but Really, James? I'm okay. So okay. I'm All right, okay. Lars. Marty, right, Marty, Lars. are you? All right. Hello. This Marty, was. Why the fuck do you only say one thing? This is over, Buster. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he said more than one thing. Thank you, Marty. Thanks, we love Marty. You.